0: This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices.
1: Welcome to Reimagine Law. In today's episode, we're going to look at something really topical, courts in the pandemic. And Fran, I think we're delighted today to be joined by a couple of of guests who are going to really help us with some really hands-on points of view on what's changed in the pandemic, perhaps what we can learn and things that have still worked well.
0: Absolutely, Nigel. Um, we're really lucky today to be joined by Rudy Forston QC from 25 Bedford Row and also by honor Judge Sarah Cove, who sits as a circuit judge in the family courts in the Southeastern Circuit. Hello and welcome both of you to the episode. Um, lovely to have you here. Let's kick straight off with our first question. How has the COVID-19 pandemic
2: Change the way that courts function? Before COVID uh, all family hearings were held in a courtroom uh, as you'd expect and uh, there were occasional uses of technology such as a prisoner coming in from prison by video to avoid having to transport them and vulnerable witnesses so say a um, young a child who is giving evidence against their parents in an abuse case they might give evidence by video Um, or an expert's on holiday uh, and you've got to try and grab them while you can to give evidence in a medical case but on the whole we were all uh, turning up in court in person face to face and so obviously Covid's led to a really significant change in the way we work. So immediately after lockdown, uh, the family courts um, went on to telephone to start with. And then the court service that had already had a bespoke video platform in in the making, essentially, um, had to speed everything up and do five years work in about five weeks. Um, and then we moved on to cloud video platform. And, and that's how we're dealing with most hearings still now with some face-to-face. Um, the court has to work out each day how many people coming in and it marks out spaces where people sit. Everyone has to wear a mask and, uh, unless they're speaking. And uh, we have about eight people in a large courtroom at any one time. So typically, who might the eight people be who are um, actually attending in
0: person? And who might the people who are appearing um, via the cloud video system, who might they be?
2: Well, on the um, usually it's the parents who want to come to court because um, sadly COVID has really widened the gap in poverty uh, in terms of what's available to parents and families uh, to be able to join these video meeting, video hearings, I'm sorry. Um, and um, so they often have to come to court because they don't have the tech to enable them to join from their home. So in so in the short answer is the parents tend to come with their um, barristers and solicitors and the uh, other, the social workers and their Um, lawyers, barristers, solicitors tend to join by video, so there's a mix, Um, and in any one family case that I tend to hear, there's usually a minimum of nine people involved, often up to 20, so you just simply couldn't have them all in court at the same time currently. Wow, yeah, that's um, that's a lot of people in a COVID pandemic.
0: Um, Rudy, I'm interested to hear um, your experiences um, and the same question to you about the criminal court. Um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the way that courts are functioning in crime?
3: Okay, well, in the criminal court, of course, we operate a policy of open justice and therefore the parties and the public will, will assemble in person. And indeed, I started really my career Um, on the basis of having attended what we now call the Crown Court, just simply as a member of the public, strolling into court and uh, seeing seeing the the case um, in action. But after um, the initial lockdown, I think there was a tendency to say, well, keep calm and let's just carry on very much as before. But eventually, as the pandemic deepened uh, and the lockdown uh, was put in place, I think the courts were somewhat wrong-footed. They had to change gear. The court system wasn't designed to deal with a pandemic and neither was the technology designed to deal with a pandemic either. And there were actually two systems really operating. One was the the virtual hearing uh, by which the lawyers and the participants would appear virtually through laptops or perhaps using telephones. But I'm more familiar actually with the hybrid system so in other words, attending court in person, although trying to deal with um, witnesses giving evidence, uh, virtually, perhaps uh, a witness giving evidence for, from a police station. And in the case that I was, uh, was in, we had actually um, several co-defendants, several defendants. So we had to split them up. So we, we were using two courts Um, over a period of um, very many days to operate a COVID-compliant trial. So we we had certain defendants in one court, the other defendants in another court. And the advocates had to be split between the two courts as well. So we found ourselves linking the two courts using um, laptop computers uh, and also having to rely on the cloud system But the process in a way revealed the facts that the courts were just not designed to deal with with pandemics and the technology initially just wasn't up to it. So for example, in order for for, um, a witness to be seen in the neighboring courts, um, the camera that was actually installed within the courtroom was only able to capture the back of the witness's head So we had to improvise in a somewhat Heath Robinson fashion by using somebody's laptop computer and the camera on the laptop in order to be able to capture the the witness's uh, face, because obviously demeanor is very important. We also had to deal with logistics in an unexpected way as well. So for example, normally one would have, of course, 12 jurors. Um, They had to be kept socially distanced and they had to be kept safe, which meant installing uh, perspex screens between each juror. And then when it came to the jury deliberating, they had to go off, of course, to their to their room, but that had to be configured in a way that kept them safe. Um, so for example, in this particular case, we had a request from one uh, member of the jury saying, well, look, could we have a, a, a whiteboard, a flipboard? And we had to say no to that because what we were concerned about is that the person uh, operating the, the, the flip might be, might be inclined to, to shout or to project his or her voice. And that would create perhaps a, a hazard. Um, so we had to say, say no to that. So there were some certainly unexpected um, uh, difficulties that, that, we, that we encountered on the way.
0: Wow, a lot there to unpick, Rudy. So we've gone from this system in the criminal courts where everybody's face-to-face typically for most hearings, um, to to a system where you're trying to do a kind of hybrid version of being there to run trials face-to-face, but with technology to to try and make it COVID compliant. Um, And um, can I just touch in on your point there about um, the public gallery and open justice that you made at the beginning? um what happens to the public in a trial which is um trying to reduce the number of people who are, are physically present in court
3: that's a really good point and, and we did encounter um difficulties in that in that regard because we had to limit the number of persons a- attending um, the, the courtroom. And bear in mind that we were using two courts. So we might, be, um, we might have tried to, for example, split up members of the public between the two courts. But we also had um, family members of the victim who wished to attend as well. So we had to, to um, ensure that they were kept separate from other members of the public. So that meant uh, using members of the court staff who would normally be engaged on other tasks, having to try to manage uh, members of the public entering and leaving the the courtrooms. It did mean, unfortunately, that numbers were were restricted, which was a pity.
0: Um, And in terms of hearings that aren't trials in the criminal courts, are they happening virtually or or face to face?
3: In terms of um, pre-trial hearings, very often they, they were being conducted uh, entirely virtually. Different courts seem to adopt different practices. So some judges, for example, would insist on personal appearance by, by, by the advocates. Other judges took a more relaxed approach. Now, I think as we're moving out of lockdown, we're slowly returning to, to normal, I think.
0: Next question, if I can move on to. Um, How have different stakeholders who use the courts, and I'm sure there's um, plenty of stakeholders in each of the family and criminal courts, how have they been affected? Um, Judge Cove, perhaps I could come to you first on this.
2: I'm going to um, draw heavily on a consultation document that's really interesting to read if, if anyone listening wants more information and whether they're social workers, parents, or, or otherwise. And, and that's the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory uh, rapid consultation on the use of remote hearings. And the president of the family division um, uh, commissioned them to undertake a consultation. And, and I took part as a judge and other judges did, but parents took, play, took part, families, professionals in the justice system, barristers, solicitors, caseworkers, workers, social workers, they all took part. And really that those reports um, that April 2020 and the follow-up was September 2020, identified feedback from all of those sectors that give a real mixed picture about how those stakeholders court users felt that remote hearings were working. My reading of that consultation and my own experience is that professionals have really taken on board the changes, developed, run with it, been really innovative, dynamic and made it um, really work. So professionals almost prefer it if it's a hearing where it can be dealt with virtually I think they'd like to continue that but there's obviously um, issues of fairness as to whether that's um, the right way forward for some families and there's some obvious cases that just should never be dealt with remotely. Um, Some parents and families um, preferred remote hearings when they felt nervous about coming to court or intimidated by one of the other parties or just scared by the whole process some of them preferred joining virtually or by telephone in certain cases but there was also a far less positive response from parents and families who really felt concerned about fairness and justice um, and um, not really being given an opportunity to have their say and there are it's a real challenge for a judge in terms of being able to show empathy and um, take on board what people are trying to tell you remotely. So those those are some real challenges. And just while I, I'm talking about challenges, some of the cases really just aren't suitable for remote hearings, and it's just not fair to families to deal with them remotely. And And the obvious one is when removing a newborn baby from a parent um, by telephone uh, or by video. uh, And that parent being on the end of a telephone or a video screen unsupported whilst their baby's taken away. um, And it really, those cases just aren't suitable going forward. Uh, But there had to be some cases dealt with in that way because of emergencies. And I particularly remember last May, Before we had the cloud video platform up and running the telephone hearings being the only way and having to make such really difficult decisions by telephone and hearing uh, a mother cry when I had to take because uh, the safety of the child required a, a child away
0: really really difficult circumstances human to human circumstances that arise in the family courts where um it sounds judge cove like you know there were some cases where the gravity of the situation it's right for it to be in court but also there's that dual aspect of how do you support somebody and put Put in place the safeguards that they might need if they're on the, the receiving end of a difficult decision. Um, Can I just ask you? You mentioned the word CAFCAS then when you were talking to us. Um, could you just explain a bit more about what CAFCAS is?
2: Um, CAFCAS is uh, a court service. It's the Children and Family Court Advisory and Support Service. Uh, they're independent of social services or any other um, professional body. Uh, and they work with children uh, and the courts. Uh, Their role is really crucial in uh, providing reports on children's wishes and feelings when they're old enough, and uh, overall uh, providing reports to the courts on what's in a child's best interest, the welfare of that child, because at the centre of all decisions about children, uh, the court has to have the child's welfare as their paramount concern, And so their role is independently to gather the information that enables the court to make a decision. And that can be in either a private law situation, namely where parents are in dispute and the decision has to be made and they make recommendations there, or in um, care proceedings or public law proceedings where social services are involved, CAFCAS will represent the children or child separately and provide a separate view and a separate voice. And their role is invaluable to me as a judge. It really gives me the information I need to make a decision. Yes, a very important stakeholder. I can, I
0: can already tell from, from hearing about them. Um, Rudy, perhaps we could come to you. Um, how have different stakeholders who use the criminal courts been affected?
3: Well, different stakeholders will have different perspectives. So let's start w- with the lawyers. I mean, Personally, uh, I would rather appear in court in person than virtually. And it took me a while to get used to to virtual hearings because one has to um, change gear and give consideration to matters that one ordinarily would not consider. So for example, I'm used to to going to court, robing up, appearing in court, saying what I have to say, (laughs) leaving. But during the course of a virtual hearing, um, I have to ask myself, well, should I be appearing in robes? Sitting at, sitting at a laptop before a laptop computer? Or uh, was it enough for me to simply wear, wear a suit? Um, what about the background image? So I have to pay some attention to that. And then I think there's also the, the question just bodily responses. One, one is looking at a, for example, at a judge uh, in close-up and no doubt the judge is looking at me in close-up as well. Um, I think <laughs> There's a danger with the virtual hearing of um, people assuming that if they're presenting a case remotely, that they can approach the bench uh, in a different way. And what I'm really hinting at is that I've heard accounts of perhaps some lawyers being less respectful to the tribunal than they would ordinarily be and should be. Sarah, have you picked up a sense of advocates being less respectful to, to the bench or... Have you been? That's is that not an experience uh, that you've encountered?
2: No, no, I have. It's not. It's not been terrible. Um, I think if you apply the same principles of controlling how you want the hearing to run to the video to the telephone, you say, "Well, it's your turn now." Um, I mean, I've got a backdrop of the uh, that looks like I'm in court, and that helps mm. um, for video. But I don't think you can uh, be face to face for. Uh, yeah. That having that authority, especially as, you know, as you know, a circuit judge court is quite grand and I'm high up and, you know, I've got a big red chair and, you know, all of that, that all adds to the gravitas, doesn't it? And if you that were you wearing so
3: if you were wearing robes and, and a horsehair wig, do you think that would help a bit as well?
2: It's a private hearing uh, and uh, no public are allowed. And because we're in, therefore, in private, sitting in private, we don't robe.
3: Oh, interesting. In terms of being actually in court during a course of what I would call a hybrid uh, hearing, I had to get used to the idea of adjusting my laptop computer so that when I stood up, for example, to, to cross-examine or to address the judge or the jury, that the camera was focusing on the right part of my, my body. So I wasn't now simply just a uh, an advocate. I also had to be uh, something of a, of a film producer and a camera person in order to make sure that um, my, my image was being uh, relayed correctly to, to the neighbouring court or to the witness in question, who, and I say the witness might be giving evidence from a police station um, in France or in Scotland. And I don't know if you watched any of the closing speeches yesterday in the George uh, Floyd trial, no. which was fascinating, but the no. defence attorney saying that he couldn't see four of the jurors. Uh, yeah, And that was striking to me because that was the one thing we made sure that the lawyers could do was to see all yes. 12 jurors. That's um, awful, because how can
0: the, you adapt your speech as you're going based on their reactions if you can't see them?
3: Absolutely mm. right, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's why using two courts, we had to make sure that when it, when it came to the counsel wow. who were in the other courts, that they were able to move into the, into the main court where the jury were um, so that they could be seen in person. Um, defendants, well, their attitude varied considerably as you, can, as you can imagine. I think there were a number of defendants who simply didn't want to turn up to court anyway. And uh, um, if they could find an excuse for, for not appearing virtually, uh, they would. But the other problem was simply actually, if, let's say a person was in custody was simply being able to link up um, the advocates and the courts with with the prison. Um, And that wasn't always straightforward for a number of different reasons. Witnesses, again, I think if they were giving evidence uh, remotely, I think their experiences sometimes range between feeling rather more comfortable about that so they didn't have to appear in person in the courtroom. And others found, I think, the whole process rather daunting. Um, jurors, I think, found the experience quite challenging as, as well. But that rather depended on, on their attitude towards COVID anyway. So those who, were, who took a rather robust position, they were quite happy to simply march into court and to pick up documents and to... Um, in a very pragmatic way. Other, other jurors were far more nervous and cautious about COVID. So, for example, we would have to be very careful about handing documents up to, up to, the, up to the jury or to, to, or to give documents to a juror um, in order to make sure that there was no risk of transferring infection from the paperwork to the to the jury concerned. Um, So safety issues featured quite a lot.
0: Thanks, Rudy. Okay, Um, let's move on to um, our third question, which is looking to the future and how the pandemic might or might not have changed the court system. Um, Can you think of any lessons learned in either of the different areas of law that that might
2: usefully be taken forward? The way forward is currently being considered by a working group um, and it's unlikely, it seems, that we'll return to entirely um, face-to-face hearings again because of the obvious efficiencies that have come about from having virtual hearings. So as I've already highlighted, there's many cases that it just simply isn't just to have a hearing virtually, but uh, the case management hearings, the more straightforward two-person hearings, where people live geographically uh, long distances apart, really offer people a way to have a hearing uh, that they can take part in, uh, that they couldn't perhaps before, or it would have been really inconvenient for them. Um, I know that professionals can be more efficient and I know that CAFCAS, for example, in their feedback to the um, Nuffield consultation, Um, felt that they could be more efficient and and help more families. Um, Some some of the uh, um, people who work at CAFCAS thought they could do more uh, remotely, Um, but of course there has to be a a balance. So the way forward, I think we've learned a huge amount about technology that works and doesn't work. Um, I should say that there are many judges who have struggled with technology, There are some that just didn't have the training to um, embrace a rapid change and and they're still struggling, some of them. And so for that reason, I don't think we'll be able to move forward to as many uh, virtual hearings as perhaps some people would like. There's more training needed, Um, but it's definitely um, opened the uh, eyes of many to the opportunities for virtual hearings. Um, and um, make people much more efficient. And you can, uh, we have a backlog, as does the um, criminal justice system. Our backlog, I don't think is as bad as the criminal justice system. For example, we're listing final hearings that might have been delayed uh, now and into September, not next year and the year after, um, because the long hearings were pushed out by COVID initially. Um, But you can run two judge courts at the same time, one virtually and one in person, and it really will improve efficiencies and perhaps reduce the delays that some families experience in decisions being made. So there are some positives, but there are so many challenges that that they they needs to be managed very carefully and and ensure fairness and justice um, in all cases we mustn't lose sight when we're talking about this as well and the fact that the courts were already starting to
0: try and move or at least say they wanted to move to um, a more um using more tech in hearings so this is just kind of um expedited things um thank you uh rudy same question to you um what do you think the future holds for the criminal justice system in particular the courts um in a post-covid world
3: I think for case management hearings, fairly short hearings, the virtual hearing is the way, way to go. Um, saves a great deal of time and resources generally. In relation to contested matters, I'm sorry, but for, for my part, the sooner we get, get back to the pre-COVID position, the better. There are certain things I think that we can probably carry across. You know, For example, in terms of witnesses giving evidence remotely, um, providing the technology is in place to, to deal with that in, a, in, a, in an efficient manner, then maybe there is something to be gained by having more um, evidence given uh, virtually. But it comes with, with problems be, because obviously we place a lot of emphasis on the importance of, um, of demeanor, the demeanor of a witness. And sometimes the I think the camera doesn't always capture a witness accurately or or even the advocate accurately. Sometimes a witness can make a gesture which actually can be misconstrued either positively or negatively. Um, And I think it's a far more productive experience and a far more efficient experience if the parties are present in person, in the courtroom with everybody together um, then simply trying to deal with, with evidence in this rather fragmented way, whereby the judge is sitting in the court, um, the advocate is perhaps in another court, and the witness is giving evidence from, from a police station or some other um, building. Um, so in terms of the future, if we are going to use technology, There are a number of things that clearly need to be be improved. I've highlighted already the problem that we've had with with cameras and the location of cameras. Um, And also just um, getting things to work um, (laughs) efficiently. So we encounter, for example, difficulties with internet connections. Um, A witness giving evidence, let's say, from Wales to a court in in London. And we then discover that um, Uh, The system that's being used is a 3G connection, which then breaks. Um, There are also issues about, for example, data protection uh, and safeguarding. So, for example, um, if a witness is giving evidence from, let's say, a police station in Wales, how confident are we that the images are not being recorded by a third party who who happens to be present in the room? And then that image appears, heaven forbid, online. In terms of using technology in order to simplify the um, the trial process, I think is going to be it's going to be difficult to manage.
0: It's really interesting to, to hear both your views on this, you know, and there's some real positives that can be taken away, that's what I'm hearing. But there's also some real challenges that we need to think about and perhaps you know, um, tech isn't always a solution for everything that we have have in in the courtroom. Um, Thank you both so much. That's been fascinating. Um, Okay, so Nigel, this is the point of the episode where we usually like to leave our listeners with a couple of actions.
1: Fascinating, Rudy and Judge Cove. Thank you so much. I mean, you've touched on so many issues here. I think, well, just one action I think the, the document you mentioned, Judge Cove, you know, the consultation document, really interesting reading. So I, I would say that, Fran, is one that our, our listeners could look at. Um, and Fran, I know we also like to give them sometimes little buddy exercises where we say, find a friend or someone in your class or someone in, in, your, in your, your group or someone you work with, uh, depending who's listening to this. A discussion with one of your colleagues around. What skills, as the there are in the courts, which we've heard about, what skills are going to be key? Because obviously there's going to be a little bit of technology involved and some of the challenges that Judge Cove and Rudy have talked about. But some of it is going to be very much a human skill set still. So I'm just thinking around there's still so much of a human skill set involved in, in the justice of the future. So I'm just thinking, have a discussion with a, with a friend around what are the skill sets you you absolutely need to develop for this world we're moving into?
0: I love that idea of, um, as, a, as a human, what kind of emotional intelligence do you need to use in coordination with tech? And I think Rudy's example of um, having to adjust the laptop when you stand up is a, is a brilliant one on that.
3: One thing I didn't mention actually was just conducting cross-examination yeah. Uh, yeah. virtually is actually, can actually be quite, quite tricky because yeah. one might have to slow down or one, has a, one encounters a time lag.
1: I was gonna say the delay, yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which can be deeply frustrating. Or you ask a question, which is an important question, and then the system breaks down. So the witness hears the question, has plenty of time to think of an answer.
0: Absolutely. Um, You can log into the Supreme Court website and view hearings that are taking place. They are filmed um, and published. And we'd encourage listeners to do that, to see what what the courtroom looks like. And it might be in the coming weeks and months, you see how the use of virtual technology is enhancing those hearings as well as enabling you to look at them. If you've enjoyed this episode of Reimagine Law, you can subscribe for free to our podcast by pressing the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to it. Um, And we hope that you listen in again soon. Thanks.